Hi, and welcome to the Climate Minute, your source for insight and perspective on global warming news. My name is Ted McIntyre. Well, this is Thanksgiving week, and what we have, we're grateful to have a conversation with our friends at Franklin Matters, where we talk about a variety of recent news stories here in the New England area. I hope you enjoy. Today is a Monday, and we're going to make sense of climate with my climate guide, Ted McIntyre. Ted, how are you doing today? I am just doing wonderfully well. It is a sunny November day, and uh, I'm good. I'll be at Frosty this morning. It's almost like, whoa, winter, December, here coming. we are. Winter's coming, <laughs> yes. I think that uh, riding my bike... The days are right. I'm afraid of, if I take my bike out, I hit a ice patch, even if it hasn't rained recently, right? There's oh. somebody's got a leak in their lawn. All of a sudden, yeah. boom, you hit the ice patch. I don't need it. So, uh, no. No. Uh, ice patches can be as dangerous as those sandy patches in, in and along the gutters. Cause once yeah. you start hitting one of those and slipping on one of those, it's almost hard to control what you're going to do. <laughs> I mean, you, th you think about it. If you're riding a bike, Right, all of your weight and all of your contact with the ground is basically like two square inches, right, under each tire. That's what's touching the ground. If and that it's starts moving, to slide, and it's, it's moving at twenty to thirty miles an hour. <laughs> yeah. But still, in all, I love biking. I uh, I really enjoy pedaling. I think, I mean, for me, it's just the joy of being able to ride around. But it's also the elegance, I guess, is the word of the bicycle as a climate fighting tool right we're gonna we're all gonna get there more and more bikes are gonna be out there just because it is so so beautiful <laughs> it's right. such a great solution yeah. oh and i think it restores that piece of humanity that we want to be in control and powerful and we can move a heck of a lot faster on a bike than we can walking or running for that matter so it's, it's, yeah it's, it's absolutely remarkable. I mean, I may have mentioned, but there was a book I read last summer about biking, and it's it's true. It's like the efficiency gain that a bicycle gives the human body mm -hmm. is just enormous. It's like off the charts in comparison to most other things. I mean, what what your legs will allow you to do on a bicycle. I mean, you can go so much farther on a bike than you can walking in a day. Right? Anyway. Anyway, back in the day when we grew up, we would got training wheels on the one speed bike, and that's as far as we could go was the one speed. And then we found out, oh, there's these 10 speeds. And oh, yeah, it was harder to push the 10, but look how far it got you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all math. Oh, and yeah. yes, it's all leverage. And oh, by the way, for the same amount of effort, you could go two feet or 20 feet. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, there I, were times I have not were... yet bought my electric bike, but I'm still dreaming about that. So yes. one of these days I'll get an electric bike. And we'll give a call back to one of our earlier episodes when there was that uh, self, not not a bike generator, but what was the special technology? What was the, it? Was the electric bike that did not have a battery, but it had a capacitor? Capacitor, an yes. ultra capacitor to hold the electric energy. And siphon it out when you needed it. Like, 
That's the future. Now that's man. the way to go. You get the best of both worlds. So when I was just going to say, you know, you needed that low gear when you were going up that 90% incline. <laughs> and now you could go to the capacitor and let it take you to the yeah. top. And then you could enjoy, enjoy the ride down the <laughs> other side. <laughs> yes, indeed. So in the middle of all this, we still have a roadmap that we're trying to walk along and bring some people along and say, hey, that's happening. How do we help? How do we do this? And there is a whole lot happening, which we said it's kind of a recurring theme, but even more so, I think there's just so many links we can touch on. There, uh, So in preparation for this show, Steve, I oftentimes will capture different articles that I see over the course of what do we meet every couple of weeks? Right? And there's stuff that comes in. It's interesting. So, oh, that would be great to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then something else supersedes that. And after after two weeks, you've got 10 different shows you could show, or things you could talk about, and you never quite get to them. So I think that it, it dawned on me that it would be interesting just to talk through some of the things that have happened recently without going into a lot of detail, because it, each each one is a fair amount of detail and has a whole story behind it. But it does give you the a sense of the scope of how many climate things are moving. I mean, there mm -hmm. are a lot of gears turning. I mean, sometimes you get frustrated that we're not moving fast enough, but there's stuff going on to be sure. And some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's stalled, some of it is showing advancement, but there's stuff going on. So can I just briefly knock on some of these topics? Uh, yeah, let, to, let's just to go mention? and I'll just put in the one other plug that, uh, dear listeners, thank you for listening. And we will include the notes of <laughs> all the links because, yeah, we'll kind of skim over them. But then you can, at your leisure, dig into the depth that you do desire. I know at least one or two of them have links to reports, the reports themselves you could spend hours with. <laughs> so we're going to clearly give them a coverage, you know, kind of speeding along on that bike to continue along that theme so far. <laughs> right. yeah, I'm going to 10th gear now. Um, so we had an election last week, right? We had an election in Franklin. We had an election across the country. One of the things that was going on was that in the state of Maine, uh, to our north, there was a ballot initiative to allow the citizens of the state of Maine to get rid of their privately owned utility and make a, a basically nonprofit utility, yeah, right? And to, too, and to yeah. have that go in Maine. And of course, it was opposed strenuously by the for-profit utility, right? Mostly claiming that it was going to be so expensive to buy them because they were worth so much that it was going to throw the poor, hapless consumer into an economic downturn because they'd have to spend so much money for electricity. Well, it turned out the bad guys won in that circumstance. And in Maine, the vote was to reject the idea of having a uh, a a public utility, which is in fact not for profit, right? Publicly right. owned, I guess is mm -hmm. the new word. Okay. Yeah. So boom, that happened. There's a link there. You can read about it. There's lots of backstory on it. But what it touches on is this whole question of who should own the utilities. The you're like here in Massachusetts, we got privately owned utilities. They're making a buck and they're fighting us every step of the way, right? You know, you say, well, maybe they God, there's no eleventh commandment that said they have to be there, right? So that's yeah. one story. 
it's kind of the nature of the capitalistic economy as well that oh by the way yes somebody started up at some point in time in the fossil fuel companies many years ago generally um and got the well head and started pumping and they've been at it since and Certainly, anybody can look through the standard oil and the breakup and then the diversification and now the, you know, Pac-Man type theory of they're gobbling up and now they've got drilling entities and holding companies and it's just much more complex. But still, they're behind the fossil fuel industry. They've got a boatload of money that we're giving them because we're buying the stuff and we're yeah, over the barrel to that extent. But economically, the utilities look like they are have the permanence of the Sphinx and the pyramids. Right. But they don't. They're just no. economic entities. They can get chopped up and changed. So that's just a seed to grow in the back of your head, dear listener. That so yeah. okay. We, now we move. We move to the west. We go from Maine to New Hampshire. Okay. There's two things that came out of New Hampshire. One is that climate activists were arrested at the what's called the Bow Power Plant, Bow, New Hampshire, B-O-W, New Hampshire, right? As the last coal-powered power plant in New England area. Mm. And protesters have been standing in front of the trains that bring the coal in. They've been doing right. all sorts of uh, direct actions. So I guess what happened was the some of the some of the people got in their their kayaks and paddled out into the river which the bow plant is on and they they were in public land but still the police came and arrested them right and so this touches on all kinds of you know the heavy-handed crackdown on climate protests mm -hmm. and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing but they you can read about it in the links okay right. um the other thing that's happened in new hampshire is a proposal that is floating around in the new hampshire state house I, I i'm not a new hampshire right so i don't want to say more than that there's a proposal and what that proposal would do is to allow the seabrook power plant to get renewable energy credits for generating electricity so a nuclear plant gets renewable energy credits for ostensibly clean electricity because there's no fossil fuel anymore once the plant's built and you just right Fine, fine. Seems like it make, makes sense. But if you have this huge entity that's cranking out electricity and cranking out renewable energy credits, it basically endangers the market for the renewable energy credits that you would get if you put a solar panel on your roof. Because right. those credits, because you're flooding the market from the from Seabrook, right? And so this is all, you know, if you put on your aluminum foil hat, you say, well, gee, what they want to, they want to flood the market with renewable energy credits from Seabrook. So now no one will bother building a windmill or put solar panels on, and it's all a big conspiracy, right? But the flip side is it's probably just the very powerful people who own Seabrook wanting to maintain their dominance, and there you go. Well, it's a, it's a question of how clean is clean to be clean, for pushing the point. I mean, okay, so they don't generate fossil fuels, but, oh, by the way, the radioactivity of nuclear energy that half-life <laughs> exceeds that of the fossil fuel, and we're st we still have a problem. And I don't know if the energy credits are going to do anything about that, other than, to your point, prohibit some of the other competition. So, yeah, it's it's get convoluted quite quite quickly. So, so since we're on we're on the topic of nuclear, which is enormous, right? Would so w w that story is a nuclear thing about nuclear power plants in New Hampshire. Let's just jump to the national scale for one moment. 
it turns out that at the national level, there's been a movement to have something called a small modular reactor, which is a nuclear power plant in the size of a shipping container. Right. And there was this move that this is going to be the solution. Bill Gates put money in it, blah, blah, blah. It turns out that that company just gave up the goals and said, it's too expensive. It's not going to work. Ah. So again, mm. nuclear power as a solution, you know, this too cheap to meter nuclear power has failed. Right. And we're still looking at that windmill standing there cranking away the mm-hmm. unloved windmill that nobody wants. Everyone's in right. love with the nuclear stuff. Right. So uh, at the national, so there's two sort of nuclear related stories. But anyway, yeah, that's New somebody, Hampshire. And if somebody wants to go back, there's a prior archive story with our rep Roy, who also mentioned some of the nuclear because he had visited. Uh, was it Millstone in Connecticut? Yeah, yeah. Who was looking to establish some of those. And I think our representative was looking to create legislation to allow the purchase of such because they were already doing it and they're going to have the electricity who might as well at least help our economy and quote, get some green that way. But yeah, the, the life cycle in terms of longevity may not be <laughs> there for that from a long-term solution perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's back to, Nuclear, we don't have nuclear power for a reason. And that's because it's expensive and slow and nobody really wants it. But, mm. okay, so we're in New Hampshire now. We're in Nashua. Jump in the car. We're going to zoom down to Rhode Island. So we're going to blast down Route 95. We get into Providence, Rhode Island. And there is an article uh, in published in something called Echo Rhode Island. It's a uh, uh, an environmental group there. And basically, it was an opinion editorial blasting the Rhode Island transit authority for not having any actual plan to reduce transportation related emissions in Rhode Island. And that the the person who is in charge of the transit authority is, you know, thinks that is making the argument that by building another lane on I-95 through Providence, you'll people will drive faster and so mm. you'll have less emissions because they're, they're driving their cars less. And like, man, that is a tortured explanation of why, you know, and so they're blowing off, they're taking the money from the I, the in, Inflation Reduction Act, building more highways, taking the money that would be built to make bike paths and stuff like that. So read the article. It's a, um, um, shall we say, Polemic? It's not a, pole- a polemic. It's kind of a political statement about about something, right? Yeah, yeah. It, and uh, Rhode Island's a unique case, and I can speak to it because I <clears throat> was at least born there, raised there for a good piece of life. <laughs> um, I had an uncle who was in the state legislature, and my father was fond of saying, even to the governor and others at the time, that my uncle was the only honest politician in Rhode Island. Unfortunately, he has long since passed, as has dad. So the story would be that there are no left, no, no honest politicians left in Rhode Island. I don't want to be that broad a cut. It was more meant in humorous and generous terms, et cetera. But it, it is, and there are studies, and there are numerous studies that shows that building more roads does not improve things. It just enables more cars. And is that really where you want to go? No. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, case closed. Let's move on. <laughs> move on. All right, so let's try. Let's get back on 95 and take our electric vehicle. We'll ride our electric bike back up uh, back up the dedicated bike lane on Route I-95 uh, back into Massachusetts. 
So there's a bunch of stuff happening in Massachusetts that is of interest. Uh, we can kind of bounce around. Oh, what I hope we get to talk to is an enormous and very impressive report on the climate roadmap that has come down. But that's yeah. that's a we should we should the rest of these things are kind of related. So let's talk to them first. Um, first order of business is that the mayor mayor of Boston, Mayor Wu of Boston, had begun by talking about a Green New Deal for Boston. And one of the hooks of that Green New Deal was to take advantage of a bill that the, that the legislature had passed that allowed for 10 different communities in Massachusetts to ban natural gas in new buildings. Right? So there's this convoluted chain of things, right? The mm -hmm. bill that says 10 communities can ban natural gas natural gas in their building code. And so, of course, Boston wanted to apply and become one of those 10 communities. 10, ten select communities. 10 and select the, communities. And of we, course, we went into uh, that in detail in one of our other episodes, not to beat the horse on that one, but we, we have covered a lot of material in our oh, series. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm trying to think, Brookline, there was communities that current legislation, in order for them to make that legislation at a local community level, they need the state approval. So it has to go through the legislature. The legislature with our rep Roy, because he talked about it as well, had enabled that to the extent of this 10 pilot communities. So a number of people wanted to get in. Boston indicated, because one of, that was one of uh, the mayor's uh, campaign actions. I want to do this. I want to do this, et cetera. This will help us. And yet, because others... And, and again, pilot program from a state perspective, they want to test the water, so to speak, and gather some data across multiple communities, types of communities. And apparently Boston, at least as of this writing from Michelle Wu, et cetera, being reported on, is getting the indication that maybe they're too big and too alike some of the other communities, and then they may not get selected. Right. So it's not that she's not pursuing it she is but not through that avenue <laughs> right and, and the news is that she has said we are not going to apply for one of those 10 slots because boston is just too similar to other people and so is it a win or is it a loss it's kind of disappointing but i think the it's not some uh retreat by mayor Wu. it's just no. a pragmatic leadership thing that you know we're not going to get it so let's move a different way oh and the and, state's still going to do their thing with 10 communities that at least should give a spectrum of what mass as a whole needs to do to go forward so yeah boston may not have gotten in there to begin with so why waste time on an application when you're not going to give me part of it right and the crux of the issue is that for new construction Right? We're not talking about retrofitting anything. No, For new construction, no. you want to use heat pumps, right? You don't want to be building anything that has the fossil fuel infrastructure. And so you could ban that by building code and blah. We've talked about this. Anyway, Mayor Wu backed out of the 10 thing, but it was, a, I think, a wise choice on her part. Uh, no bad on her. The other, Another interesting story that came up is that the governor has banned single-use plastic bottles for state functions so that we, we, and the argument there is that using plastic is a climate is a climate issue because they have to get so the plastics come from methane basically they take methane gas and they they 
change it and they get the precursors to plastic. And so when if you're still drilling for methane, you're still leaking methane into the world, which is a climate issue. And then at the end, there's no way to recycle the plastic. So they just burn it, which is again a climate issue. Right. So the whole thing about using plastics um, and of course, Massachusetts has a kind of a sorry history where the big money came in and crushed the the ability to uh, put a nickel surcharge on plastic bottles and whatnot. But long and short of it is the governor is trying to talk about banning plastic bottles. And correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, I think our senator is also on board with some kind mm -hmm. of a ban of plastic bottles commercially, right? Single use is like the, the little use. nips. You, you, you know, when right. I go to the liquor store and get a nip of uh fire, what, what is it? Fire, fire fireball or <laughs> that kind of stuff or the little tiny balls mm -hmm. of water. Yeah. Um, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, there's the, the plastic front is uh, full of actions. How much of those will actually come through to fruition remains to be seen for those who should be aware at least if something comes up through the senate side and also comes up through the house side in many cases they're in concert in principle but in details they differ and then it depends upon how the conference committee actually resolves before bringing it to the governor for signature right. so in some cases they don't make it out of conference um, in some cases, they make it out of conference totally different <laughs> and thereby, you know, it's it, it's just fraught. So at this point, there nothing has truly advanced just yet other than the executive order that says, oh, by the way, and she can do that. We're just as a state entity not going to buy single use waters, um, which coincidentally given and I don't want to go down too much the whole because of the migrant housing issue. Um, that would take away one of the supplies of water for migrants in the housing situation. So it complicates her own problem to that extent. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, be it as it is, things will get worked out. Certainly, as we touted in our prior one, you know, as long as the left hand and right hand are working together, things will go together <laughs> eventually. But they don't eventually. always happen in the right time frame. So the next, so as I say, there's like just there's just so many stories. There was a, there'd recently been a spate of stories. I think there was one in Commonwealth Magazine. There was one in the Globe. There was one on one of the TV channels, basically saying that the organization called Mass Save, which yes. I have touted and pushed a lot, um, is behaving strangely when it comes to supporting heat pumps. Backstory. So the, the 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 headline of the stories is that people install heat pumps, and then they can't seem to get the money from Mass Save, the rebate money that was promised for installing the heat pump. And the subtext is that Mass Save is owned and operated by the utilities. These big bad utilities like Maine failed to vote out, but I mean the utilities run mm -hmm. that, and they are still trying to make money. And and the Mass Save program is mostly focused on efficiency of using natural gas. So they want to put insulation in your home so you use a little bit less natural gas, but they don't want you to put in a heat pump. And so the, this spate of stories calls for, um, and as we'll see when we talk about the big report that came out, that the, the mass save probably needs to be taken away from the utilities and put in a state uh, um, run thing where the mandate is to reduce emissions and not just to make burning natural gas more efficient. 
right? Yeah, See? and our, our rep, Jeff Roy, had caught part of, and there's a series I'll probably misquote it, but I think one of our TV, local TV channels has kind of a, a raised the issue to us and we'll help you get a resolution and was working with a couple of people from uh, the state and different communities on their mass save rebate issues. One of those had got posted, I think, either the day before or the day of. Coincidentally, Jeff was leading one of his uh, subcommittees to which he was going to be having those very same utilities before them to testify on something else. So he said, oh, by the way, when is so-and-so going to get a rebate? I just saw it on <laughs> Channel 5. Um, short story, the next day, the rebate was confirmed as having been received. So things can happen. But yeah, to your point, the real issue, and I believe our rep talked to it before, because I know even, I think it was at the start of the term or end of their last term, the there's a goal from MassSave in terms of how they were going to be restructuring for the next three years. That proposal got revised a couple of times because they weren't aggressive enough in furthering the incentives in the right arenas. And to your point, they were just going this way to do a little bit instead of going this way to do more. The legislature worked that, but there's still more work to be done. Fortunately, it is gradually being addressed, but mm -hmm. as anything, it'll take some time to kind of work its way through. Well, I think I think it's important to keep in mind that when you see those kind of stories, you don't, dear listener, you don't just say, ah, those scoundrels, right? I never want to do that. Uh, I never want to like try and get a rebate for my heat pump, right? No. We don't want to no. condemn the whole program. The program's, I mean, the idea is good. The implementation needs to be improved. Well, in the legislation that they passed in one of the budgets, I think one of the figures, if I recall correctly, is $4 billion or million dollars. I may have the, do the dollars, but it was four something <laughs> Dollars that had now funded this mass save program, and obviously they're just kind of sitting on it, parceling out a nickel and dime as opposed to the big dollars, and yeah. that needs to change. So right. it's back to public utilities. Is the, the investor-owned utilities are a, a dinosaur that needs to be uh, needs to be gotten rid of? Anyway, all right. So let's keep marching. Mm. We don't want to talk. I mean, offshore wind continues to be uh, have headwinds, as we say. We've talked about that in the past couple of shows. But, I mean, that is an ongoing issue of how we're going to get the wind industry back on track. We've talked recently about the Hanscom, the expansion of the Hanscom Airport. Yes. So there's an expansion of the Hanscom Airport, which would increase private jet flights. I put up a couple podcasts last week about it, but the, the Hanscom Airport is – uh, I mean, the private jets are only flying from Hanscom to Martha's Vineyard. Right. right. And yeah. and because the flight is so short, they never actually get efficient because they're only take they're taking off and, and then they're landing. They're not cruising efficiently mm. in altitude. Right. And so there's this enormous climate impact. And so there's a move, people working to prevent the expansion of the Hanscom Airport that would allow more rich people to fly private jets from from Boston to Martha's Vineyard for the, for the weekend. Yeah. We'll put, but I mean one of the Increasing hangar space, increasing which, hangar which space, would, which would allow more planes to be there because oh, by the way, they're there, and how they're going to get there? They're going to fly in, they're going to fly out, right? And what I, I saw, in, so in the podcast that we did, there was a lot of talk about um, naming the people who are doing the flying. So if you're a Patriot fan, 
Robert Kraft, I guess, flies in and out of there a mm-hmm. lot, right? There's sure. like heavy-duty financial people that you can tell by name do a lot of flying in and out. Fine, fine. So this is name and shame kind of thing. But then yeah. it turns out I saw this article in a, a magazine called Jezebel, which I'm not – I don't – but it says that Kim Kardashian – Right. So Kim Kardashian, the beautiful woman on the Mm -hmm. TV show, the Kardashian family, basically does not – thinks that climate change is an issue but does not want to say anything because it will ruin her brand. And it's an interesting thing is that if Kim Kardashian – you know, what what was the joke that if if Kelsey – who's the football player in Taylor Swift – yeah. That are that are right. That if Taylor Swift hung around with a climate scientist, things would change very much, right? Sure. Everyone would love climate scientists. Same is true here. If if Kim Kardashian came out and said, "Oh yeah, we need climate action," people would believe her, but she doesn't want to alienate anybody. So it's this weird kind of celebrity conundrum that they have. Oh, mm-hmm. Put that aside. Yes, it's, is it within their brand, or do they want to extend their brand accordingly? Yes, yeah. it's a brand decision. So, yeah, and just, apparently there was a uh, there was some video that in passing, literally in passing, I was going through, and the TV was on somewhere, and uh, Taylor's running off stage after a performance to give so and so a kiss. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> apparently, it was the first time somebody had actually seen them kiss. <laughs> well, there you go. That's a red letter day. Um, so I just keep marching along. So we're going to talk in a minute about the uh, a report from the state of Massachusetts that tries to do all the right things of aligning the efforts of the whole state government. But there was an article in WBUR that talked about how Massachusetts, the combined sewer overflow issue is getting worse mm-hmm. and worse in Massachusetts, especially yeah. in the context where we have more intense rainstorms and flooding in Massachusetts. And so I think, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, that combined sewer uh, overflow kind of thing is the justification for some of the work that's being done in Franklin right now, right? Yes and no. So there's a key difference there. And uh, I do have a two, three-part series, one on the water system, one on the sewer system. In some communities, particularly older ones, the water and the sewer in some cases, tends to become one system mm-hmm. in terms of the catch basins for stormwater being key. So clearly, it's not the drinking water. Drinking water is separate. But stormwater and sewer sometimes become one system in terms of an outflow. And yes, when the stormwater is such, as we've seen with 8-inch, 10-inch rains, then it can overload that capacity and thereby flow in and force sewerage in through uh, the outflows as well. In Franklin, we are rebuilding a portion of our over 100-year-old sewer pipe, but we have two separate systems. Okay. There is a separate stormwater system and a separate sewerage system, so they do not meet. We have a separate pieces. I think you're aware, and some of the community should be aware, the stormwater fee got implemented this past July 2023 to help us address the stormwater maintenance issues from the Fed, EPA, Mm -hmm. forcing us to remove more and more phosphorus from the Charles to in order to clean Uh, the Charles. Really? But the Beaver Street Interceptor replacement project just kicked off. The ground breaking was last week. I missed it because of other complications, but um, it is official. It's underway. 
it'll provide significant traffic disruptions along 140 during periods of the next three years as they progressively dig along 140, cut a new section of pipe, and then move along, move along, move along to connect to uh, effectively the line along Pond Street that'll bring it into Medway uh -huh. at the Charles River uh, Pollution Control Plant. They'll also build near the Recreation Department on Beaver Street, another pump station um, to replace and part of the interconnects, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole massive project underway. There'll be regular updates from the city, the town of Franklin. <laughs> the but, city but known just, as the town of Franklin. The connection, though, is that, I mean, the increased, so you say we have separate sewer and stormwater, but they're increasing stormwater Increasing rainfall is what would stress the stormwater system, and that's got to be cleaned up, right? Yeah. And some communities, not us, have that as a major issue, which is where the article came from. Mm, okay. So when it rains so much, Char uh, I think uh, Cambridge and other places along the Charles will then include sewerage in with the outflow into the Charles and that's that's not right, good. Right, 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 we right. don't have that situation. Coincidentally, we are replacing and yes, increasing our sewer capacity, but just to manage our sewer capacity and replace an old pipe so it doesn't break, because okay. that would be indeed be a climate issue. Yeah. Uh, if you recall, and if you don't visualize it, the existing Beaver Street interceptor runs and think of Beaver Street where you cross the railroad tracks just before you get to Beaver Pond and to the mm -hmm. recycle center. So you're at the railroad tracks. That's where the Beaver Street interceptor runs by the railroad across the wetlands. Not good. Oh, <laughs> Under the uh, Franklin Village Mall. At that point, I think it's like 50 foot below. So if somebody needed to fix a pipe mm. that broke 50 foot bad. below, not easy. <laughs> Yeah, so oh, if if oh. the worst were to happen, and heaven forbid, it won't happen until the pipe gets finished, <laughs> we could be in big liability doo-doo. Um, wow. But, yeah, the Not work at liability. least is underway. Um, yeah. Right. Well, okay, so let's – so just briefly, we'll, we'll finish with this, this tour of climate news. Everyone should know that the something called the Inflation Reduction Act – was passed, uh, and the that's it's actually a climate bill to uh, fund green energy. One of the forms of green energy that people can think about is something called ma is making hydrogen, right? So now we're completely new topic. New topic. Mm -hmm. We're talking about something completely different, right? Federal government just spent seven, just allotted seven billion dollars, seven billion with a B, for research on generating hydrogen. Hydrogen gas has a role in combating climate change. Uh, the way to think of it is that green that that hydrogen generated with green technologies is like a single malt scotch. It is like the most rare thing, right? You do not want to mix your single malt scotch with Kool-Aid or anything like that, right? Which is <laughs> which is what the proposal is to to add hydrogen to methane gas or or to waste the hydrogen driving your car around because your electric car is much more efficient. And you don't want to be making hydrogen from methane. 
because that produces almost as much carbon dioxide as just burning the, the methane, right? So on the one hand, the federal government has sunk a lot of money into a good topic of finding out how to generate hydrogen, but a lot of that money will be channeled into fossil fuel interests who want to use methane and keep the whole methane drilling storage pipeline situation alive in order to generate hydrogen and then say that the hydrogen is is green. Right? So it's a very kind of mixed circumstance. Mm -hmm. It's a deep, deep topic. But when you see this stuff, say, yeah, congratulations, Joe Biden. Hydrogen's a good thing. Money's a good thing. But it's got to be thoughtfully done. And I would argue that right now it's not being thoughtfully done because guys like Joe Manchin have the the – you know, one one of those billion dollars all went to West Virginia to figure out how to make methane into hydrogen. Because right? Joe Manchin wanted it. So. Mm -hmm. Right. And the last thing I'll mention, just from a climate perspective, to keep in mind is that I've never been to Acapulco in Mexico. It's a I'm told it was a beautiful resort on the Pacific coast. <clears throat> it got hammered with hammered. a hurricane. Yeah. For the like the first time a real hurricane has ever hit the western coast of Mexico. And this hurricane went from a relatively weak storm. It intensified with within the, like 48 hours or something? Or even less, like 12 hours or something, such that they couldn't even warn the people no. because the ocean water was so warm because of global warming and Acapulco was devastated. And it's just not quite in the news. I mean, you don't see it much. It's like gone down the memory <laughs> hole already. But anyway, there's a million things. That's your tour of the the Ted McIntyre's $5 tour of climate news from the last <laughs> month or so. Uh, read it and weep, but it's good to know about. Yeah. And it's, yeah, Mexico's a separate situation. It's tragic, period. Uh, never mind the stuff that's going on in the Middle East. It's tragic on both sides, but we're climate focused. And I think we'll come back to the other report, which if people want to do some reading, uh, the Hoffer report, the short term, she's the new, quote, climate czar, although she doesn't like the czar title, but she's the lead on climate for the state. And she just produced a report, which is X number of pages. There's an executive summary that it, even if you do that, you get an A for effort oh, yeah. and a whole bunch of intelligence. Because, oh, by the way, many cases, I think you'll say, oh, wait a minute. Did Steve talk about that? Ted talked about that. We talked about that many times that. along the way. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you're quite right. The we elite, the we in this show, and I in particular, have pounded my shoe on the table like Mr. Khrushchev 50, 60 years ago about how the state bureaucracy needs to become aligned and not at odds with itself in terms of addressing climate change, that there is a roadmap, but that all the organizations in the state all need to recognize that that roadmap exists and serve it. And so this, um, this person now in charge of is the climate office under Governor Healy, she doesn't want to be called a czar. I agree. That's just like, you know, trivializes the whole thing. She's in charge of coordinating things. It's something called the Climate Office. And they put out a 87-page report. And it, I mean, I loved it. I read it. And I, I mean, there was, I, I, I didn't read the whole report. I read the executive summary. And even then, I skipped a few pages. So I can't, can't mm -hmm. pretend that I read the whole thing. But it it's impressive. I mean, the 
Let me just quote from it. And this is, so this report that is trying to align all of the state agencies uh, to address the climate issue according to the climate roadmap, this is what the report says. The creation of the climate office, which is the people that put out the report, the creation of the climate office and its work can be thought of as intentionally disruptive. It should break down silos, align agency actions with the Commonwealth's legislatively mandated emissions reductions requirement and the Hello. climate policy. And it should create opportunity for cross-pollination among agencies and with stakeholders and partners, including municipalities, labor, advocates, and the private sector. It should, this climate office should drive collaboration, spur different ways of defining problems and opportunities, lift up innovation, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, that's the kind of thing for the state a state agency, the governor's office to put out is impressive. I mean, th this is the kind of mobilization. They talk about a whole of government approach where mm -hmm. everyone, each agency has climate as part of their mandate and they have to think about it when they do stuff and mm -hmm. they can't do stuff at odds with other organizations. So that's been one of our recurring themes. And I think we addressed that specifically also coincidentally in our last session where I think we referenced, was it the ombudsman or the um is oh the inspector general had done yes, a report yes, yes, yeah, 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 around yeah, yeah, yeah. the bus uh purchasing that required you know fuel purchase separately from the buses which worked in the old days if you will when you had fossil fuel generated buses but now when you get electric buses it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have them separate like that so that highlighted and fortunately, she may have read the report or it was coming along at the same time. She may have already been a right track, you know, operating on that 10 speed bike that we've talked about right, and right, right. <laughs> trying to, to, to get the, everybody in gear to go. Here we go. Absolutely. I mean, it really is a uh, a heartening thing to see that report come out. So let me just quote you a little bit more from this this report, which is so there's a section later on where it talks about the the. The barriers. So the way the report, the executive structure, the executive summary is structured. Of course, there are several pages touting all of the good things that the governor and the state has done. Right? We passed the the Global Warming Solutions Act in 2008. You know, there's all kinds of good things that have been done. So they list all those. But then they talk about barriers, things that are preventing further progress, and it's just an interesting list of things that kind of touches on things that we've we've touched on before, but it says the critical barrier, I'm quoting now, the critical barriers fall into six broad categories. There's lack of adequate funding for mass scale building and transportation electrification. That is to say, there's no funding to do the sort of heat pump retrofits across on massive scales that we need. Um, and there's other categories there. The second one is that there are workforce shortages Mm -hmm. Right. And if you and I have to right here in, in this area, we're building a new vocational high school. At and the, the question is, is capacity of the old one. <laughs> but is it going to be teaching? Is it going to be teaching green, um, uh, you know, the jobs of the future? It, it uh, will be teaching them. They've already been adjusting their uh, curriculum accordingly, but mm -hmm. it's still only a thousand students. And if we need more people, then the thousand may not cut the mustard. Why not build it for 15 or 16 or something? I don't know what the number is, but to build it for more. 
And just to go back to the first point, it's like that school building should be built with heat pumps and they need money funding for the massive scale. If we're going to build a school, it ought to have a heat pump in it and not a natural gas thing. Uh, the third thing is supply chain disruptions and related cost increases. And of course, that barrier we're seeing with the wind turbines, right? It's the mm -hmm. inflation all of a sudden makes uh, – and supply chain makes the wind turbines hard to do. There are technical barriers, including the delays in the electric distribution system modernization. That is to say, transmission lines to mm -hmm. bring all that, all that electricity from the offshore wind onshore, right? There's renewable energy interconnections. I mean, you have to have permission to interconnect your wind turbine to the grid. Right? All that stuff has barriers. Then there's the fifth thing is that there's vested interest opposition to the clean energy transition. What vested interest? What does that mean? There is? That mean, really? There is. Believe it or not, <laughs> there are guys who sell gasoline who don't want you to have an electric car, right? They don't want you to have a heat pump, and they will try and sell you a story about why natural gas is so much nicer to cook your stove, cook in your kitchen with, even though you're breathing in benzene. So there's vested interest, and then there's something called, they call the entrenched status quo bias, which of course is inertia and uh, mm -hmm. what is, what's the word mm -hmm. postponing things right yes. putting things off yes. because that's just that's human it's too costly we can't do it now we'll postpone our way till it's more costly in the meantime we've just lost time right we've just lost time and so again this report makes great he says so let me just so i highlighted a few of the quotes which i just struck me as being so uh so Careworthy. In interesting to say in a in a government sponsored report. And now I can't find the last thing I wanted to find. Where the heck is it? So here's the last thing I'll read, Steve, the last paragraph. This is from this report, which I think, you know, it's fun to read if you care about this stuff. It, the report says it is critically important for leaders to understand that while investments in decarbonization and resilience will be significant. We're going to spend a lot of money. Those costs are much less than the cost of failing to make the investments, both in terms of the exponentially increasing cost of climate disaster response, mm -hmm. loss of high-value ecosystems, food systems impacts, economic destabilization, and humanitarian impacts. Right? Basically, it's going to cost us more later if we don't invest the money now. Business-as-usual options – for example, building a new gas pipeline, building new housing that is dependent on fossil fuel infrastructure, or expanding an airport, appear less expensive because the social cost of carbon gases, that is the full cost of damages associated with additional greenhouse gases, is not factored into your cost estimate. Mm -hmm. And so there, this report has touched on everything we just listed in the tour of the landscape, right? Yep. The airport at Hanscom, right? How are we going to get heat pumps? What are we going to do with mass save? This report says they're thinking about it, which is heartening to, to know. And I think that's a good point for us to say, well, we made a little bit of sense of climate today. <laughs> we, we accomplished something. Not that we're there yet. It's a long road to get there. But we can go back on a bike, you know, shift from gear I mean, one I mean, to gear two and get along the way. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I think that's a good thing. Well, thank you for sharing and taking some time to uh, uh, elaborate and 
elucidate and hopefully the listeners will have enjoyed on the one hand as well as learn something on the other hand and oh by the way yeah if they really want to get interested there's a boatload of more reading out there between the links and that 87 page report but yeah that's you know that's all good it was a pleasure being here steve absolutely thank you for taking the journey with us listeners come back we'll be doing more we're not done yet so have a great Thanksgiving. We'll see you all again next time. Bye-bye. Very cool. <laughs>